If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. If you'll turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, I'll be reading from the 31st chapter, verses 31 through 34. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Uh, It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Here ends the reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. This is a beautiful and a powerful passage from Jeremiah about a new covenant that will be written on our hearts rather than on tablets of stone. But this is not, repeat not, a prediction of the new covenant of Jesus. Nor should those who compiled the Old and New Testaments, the word testament means covenant, have ever used Jeremiah to argue that he is predicting this division. Hebrew scriptures have been kidnapped since the writing of the first gospels to make the argument that they predict the coming of Jesus, when in fact Jesus turned out to be hardly the kind of Messiah that anyone was looking for. So to begin, let's study the context of these words to see if there is still a word in them for us. The new covenant that Jeremiah sees on the horizon will be for the Israelites who are in exile. In this visionary passage, Jeremiah has Yahweh promise both a new day and a new covenant for the exiled houses of Judah. The day he refers to was the day of the Lord or or the day of Yahweh, an idea rooted in the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year. The Sabbath year was observed every seven years. It was a time for restoring the covenant with God, but after the seventh Sabbath year, or seven times seven is 49, after 49 years, the next year something remarkable and radical was supposed to happen. The 50th year would be the year of Jubilee. It is an idea so subversive 
and to the powers that be so disturbing that the word jubilee is used in Leviticus and then is never used again. In the jubilee year, all debts are to be canceled. Can you imagine? Slaves are to be freed, stolen land returned, and all of creation would revert back to its original owner and ultimately to God. I have to admit, when I read this, I started humming Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land. I remember vividly a debate at the Capitol years ago about whether this song and the lyrics meant that Woody was a communist. One of our elected officials said on the House floor, I don't know what he means by your land, but he better not be talking about my land. So I don't need to explain to anyone here why this idea of jubilee was and still is, like so many other religious ideas, lovely to talk about, but impossible to consider actually doing. Let's just say that jubilee is not Wall Street's favorite sermon topic. And you don't hear a lot of sermons in wealthy churches about looking forward to the cancellation of all debt. Debt is big business, to put it mildly. We're all indebted to debt. So this word jubilee went underground out of fear of reprisal by wealthy landowners and royalty, also known as the empire. So far as we know, jubilee never happened. Even Isaiah comes up with a, with a euphemism for jubilee, calling it the year of the Lord's favor, which is repeated in Luke's account of the first sermon given by Jesus. You know the one where he is so well-spoken, but then goes from preaching to meddling and almost gets killed by the congregation. This is the first thing we learn about the public ministry of Jesus. It starts out with a death threat and ends with that threat being carried out. It is also interesting to note that when the prophet Amos wrote about 150 years before Jesus, the expression, the day of Yahweh, had become synonymous with God's judgment, not God's mercy. Those who looked forward to it were fools, according to Amos. He wrote these words to drive home a darker point. Alas for you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. So for Jeremiah, the idea of the day of Yahweh was positive, hopeful, redemptive. The new covenant he referred to recalls that forged between Yahweh and the Hebrew people in their liberation from bondage in Egypt. Of course, they have broken that covenant, and that is why Jeremiah believes they are now in exile, which is a new kind of bondage. Now God must renew the covenant, a new covenant, by, quote, writing it on their hearts. It's such a beautiful phrase, but it might slide past our ears unnoticed, but it would not have slid past Jeremiah's audience unnoticed. It would have been provocative, especially when you consider how sacred and central was this idea that Moses had delivered the law on tablets of stone. He didn't write on anybody's heart. So just imagine a very devout Jew 
hearing this and thinking kind of that it's an insult. Maybe he would say, so, hey, now the tablets of Moses aren't good enough. God is going to write it on our hearts. Isn't that lovely? You could call it cardiac encryption. Jeremiah, the first New Age touchy-feely prophet. Well, perhaps Jeremiah is just struggling with what all religious leaders struggle with in the end, namely, that you can know what the right thing to do is, and your lips can be full of gratitude for the things you believe God has done for you. But in the end, you do not live any differently. Jeremiah said that his people had been chosen and liberated, and now they should act like it. And as always, the bottom line was how do you treat the other, the stranger, the foreigner, and why does this matter? Because in Deuteronomy, the question is asked and then answered. Why should you love the stranger? Answer. You shall love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not deprive a resident alien or an orphan of justice. You shall not take a widow's garment in pledge. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Or, to make this more contemporary, imagine a vineyard owner today in Napa Valley having 90% of his grapes picked but leaving 10% of them on the vine for the pickers, then giving them the right to use the equipment after hours to turn those grapes into wine or to drink it. We are all guilty of this, of course, but it is particularly tragic when those who are guilty of failing to love and care for their neighbors are the same ones who claim that God loves and cares for them. They revel in chosenness, but not in what chosenness obligates them to do for others who I guess are unchosen. When I first read the opening lines of this passage, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, I knew immediately what Jeremiah would say today, but only if first the house of Israel makes peace with its Palestinian neighbors and releases them from bondage. You can't be God's chosen people and practice apartheid. What would Jeremiah say to America today? In his famous temple sermon, he puts it as an if-then statement, a conditional statement. If you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. But of course, they did not uphold their end of the covenant. He writes, you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe only to go on doing all these abominations. Therefore, I will bring to an end the sound of mirth and gladness, the voice of the bride and the bridegroom in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for the land shall become a waste. Did you hear that? 
The land shall become a waste. If Jeremiah were preaching this morning, surely he would say, just look around. The pile of rubble that is Syria, look at the rising seas and the terrible storms of global climate change. Look at the gilded gaudiness of Mar-a-Lago. Look at the strutting narcissism of oligarchs. Look at the opioid carnage of big pharma, the legal drug lords who live next door. Your president is not looking at prototypes of bridges, but at prototypes of walls. Case closed. Your payday loan industry is a direct contradiction of the biblical mandate that you never give aid to a friend or family member in such a way that you turn a profit. As for Jubilee, uh, don't use that word. Don't use that word. Is that some sort of party? Three things have happened at Mayflower this week that are both haunting and worth sharing. First, Dr. Renee McNall Knapp, who treats children with cancer, told us about a five-year-old boy that she is now treating for Hodgkin's disease. He is also severely autistic. He was born here, but his mother, who is Guatemalan, is undocumented. When she was rear-ended by a police car several years ago and then found to have no driver's license, she was turned in and became part of the deportation system. She was to report to the ICE office on Thursday, and she was terrified that she would be deported on the spot, leaving no one to care for her disabled son. Together with Lori and a group of faithful members of this church, we accompanied her to the hearing, sat with her, and waited to hear the news. She got a temporary stay of 60 days and one of those ankle devices on her leg to keep track of her, and then she must report for another hearing. And we have letters to write and political pressure to mount, and we'll let you know how you can help. But just to be clear, she is the stranger that Jeremiah is talking about. And we need to come home from Babylon. A second moment of clarity and opportunity came this week when a, when a woman stopped by the church, got out of her car, walked up to the door where she left a box of ashes human remains on the doorstep, and then drove away. You've heard of, I guess, the abandonment of babies on church doorsteps. This was an abandonment of ashes by someone who, who wanted them to be here, I guess, perhaps in our columbarium garden, or maybe she was just driving by and we looked like a church and there was no family to give them to, and you know, one does not just throw human ashes out with the garbage. So we got them. Rick Bolin retrieved the box, called the funeral home, whose name appeared on the box, along with the name of the deceased. And it turns out she is an African-American woman that none of us know, and whose family we cannot reach, but whose remains ended up on our doorstep. Now, what are we going to do with them? Sean Myers had an idea. We will have a section of the garden, the memorial garden, that is available like the potter's field or the pauper's graves of old, where burial can take place for those who are not known to us 
or indigent, but who are still children of God. And then Sean said, I will purchase the plaque and we will put her name there and we will put her ashes in the ground here. Well, that's not really our policy. So if any one of you would like to argue with Sean about this, <laughs> go ahead. I'm not going to. For one thing, I would be wrong again. And, and then I would have Jeremiah to deal with. Why? Because it is Jeremiah who is speaking through Sean. That's how the luminous web works. A place in our memorial garden for the stranger? How could we not? Besides, when I hear the ranting of those who would turn us against our neighbors today, I'm reminded that other than American Indians, we are all from someplace else. All of us are from someplace else. But we are not all equally fortunate to have found a home here, and, and this is story number three. At our weekly vigil outside an unmarked ICE office near here, where we've been told repeatedly that we should not be holding a religious ceremony, even though the Department of Homeland Security does appreciate that we seem to be nonviolent, a man approached our gathering and began moving around the periphery of it, and I could tell, I could tell he was upset about what we were doing. And then he became verbally abusive, and finally, because I guess this is just what you do, someone said, why don't you talk to our senior minister? He's, <laughs> he's right over there. And so he said, fine, and I was wearing a collar and I teach rhetoric, so one could argue this was not a fair fight, but as it turned out, it wasn't a fight at all. He just said, so why are you defending criminals? I said, we are not defending criminals. We're standing with our neighbors who are frightened and who remain human beings even if they've made a mistake. We all make mistakes, but then we all remain human. Those who have broken the law to get here did so trying to make a better life for their families and a better future for their kids, and surely all of us are more than the worst thing we have ever done. Besides, absent a coherent national immigration policy, which we don't have because, well, we can now both posture and take advantage of cheap labor, we're in the strange position of using day laborers to do the hardest work there is, and then we wish to have those workers disappear after sundown. If we will deport the mother of a very ill and disabled child, we will deport anyone. The man then thanked me for not calling him a racist. We talked for a long time, and I found out that his family, all Italians, first emigrated to the United States, as he put it, because they worked hard in the funeral business. And then he said, they were willing to touch dead bodies, and most people won't do that. I said, yes, that is the American dream. And your great-grandparents were fortunate to come at a time when Lady Liberty was indeed lifting her lamp beside the golden door. Besides, it's not that way now. Things have changed, even though the power of human dreams has not. And then he thanked me again for not calling him a racist. The fact that your great-grandparents would do the kind of work that nobody else would do puts you in 
exactly the same company with immigrants now, legal or not. Their ticket to freedom involves doing work that nobody else will do. So I wonder, sometimes I said to him, if we're not really all just related. He thanked me again for not calling him a racist. And in that conversation, during which he made many good points and honestly expressed his concern about where we're going as a nation, I told him that none of us thinks this is easy or that how we're to be responsible for one another and the next generation, that that's not enormously complicated. But I said, look around, these are church people. I said, we're church people. And if we're going to sound, or more importantly, act differently from other people who have not had to listen to Jeremiah, it will be because our first obligation is to welcome the stranger. By the end of the conversation, he said he understood some things he did not understand before. And then he thanked me for the conversation. I thanked him for the conversation as well and said, if we're going to get through this, we're going to have to talk to one another. We shook hands, he headed off into the rest of his day, and I into mine. I would not trade that conversation for anything. There were no winners or losers, just people talking about where they're coming from and why they are worried, why we are all worried about the future. And I thought, what a privilege it is to be part of a church like this one. And how fortunate we are to be exactly where God is calling us to be. So when the teachers walk out two weeks from tomorrow, when they walk out as they must because we have walked out on them, we will need to find a way to help feed children and to support teachers because they are our neighbors. To finish, I was reminded of the story that Archbishop Desmond Tutu told once about leading a confirmation class in which his job was to outline the meaning of the Mosaic Covenant <laughs> to adolescents. He went through it step by step, explaining the promise of God that God would rescue the Hebrew people from slavery and that they would worship only God and then act in ways that show themselves to be a liberated people. Then he explained how this had manifested itself later in the teachings of Jesus. And when he got all finished, he asked them for a review, a summary of what he had said, just to see if any of it had gotten through. And there were some brave attempts, some of which indicated some of them were listening. And then it got very quiet. And finally, one little boy raised his hand, and he put it better, perhaps, than any theologian could have. He said, quoting God, I saved your butts, so now you go behave. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., with adult education classes at 10 a.m. 
and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.